welcome to Season 5 of the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors Worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, moderator of Meaningful Conversations and convener of Community. I continue to find so much gratitude for all the warriors willing to share their stories with us. And so whether you are or know someone who is battling multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, scleroderma, lupus, or any of the multiple autoimmune diseases that HSCT can halt, or are simply inspired by transformational journeys, you're in the right place. As we continue to grow, the HSCT Warrior Community illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. I'm so glad you've joined us. Thank you so much, Lynn, for participating in the podcast. Oh, you bet. So you are on your way to Mexico at the end of this month, right? To receive HSCT. HSCT, yep, headed down to Conica Ruiz in Monterey on October 25th. And so how, well, I would love to know more about your experience with CIDP, and I really appreciate you reaching out because we do not have a lot of stories related to CIDP, and I'm so grateful that you're willing to share yours with us. Oh, absolutely. You know, I appreciate that. I know there's a lot of people in the community um, that are, you know, just like in the MS community that are struggling and are searching for answers and are searching for information. And so, um, you know, I was thrilled when I found HSCP Warriors to see that you did have one podcast that had a gentleman that had had CIEP. And I, you know, zoned in on that you know, immediately, of course, but it definitely just kind of home home for me. Um, the fact that, that, yeah, there's, there's a, a small representation there and, um, which is kind of disproportionate to the number of people I know that are looking, looking for information, not that it's disproportionate to, you know, the general, excuse me, autoimmune community that's, that's looking at HSUT for answers. So anyway, um, because there can be such range of different experiences for people, um, I'm I'm more than happy to yeah to, to to add mine to the list so that anyone is who is looking for information can can hear something else. That's so wonderful. I truly truly appreciate that. And you are in the medical field by trade, right? I am. I am. So I'm a biomedical engineer by training. I have a PhD in biomedical engineering from Northwestern University, and then. I had the amazing opportunity to stay in Chicago after I finished my PhD. Um, I did my postdoc at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, um, which is a rehabilitation hospital. It used to be the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago um, in downtown Chicago. And so rehabilitation engineering is essentially my field. I had studied um, motor recovery, so how people recover the use of their arms and legs, interestingly enough. But wow. specifically... You know, more specific to stroke and central nervous system issues um, and stroke and spinal cord injury in particular, as opposed to disease, had been um, kind of my central area um, prior to getting sick 
and yeah, eventually became a faculty member at the medical school at Northwestern in physical medicine and rehabilitation, um, as well as neuroscience faculty. So that was where I was and where, um, yeah, my training was. Um, but yeah, it is, it was a very interesting thing to be someone that studied the body and studied how, um, we recover from the loss of being able to use arms and legs to then suddenly be someone who lost the ability to use my arms and legs. I bet. <laughs> oh my gosh. So how, like, when yeah. did your symptoms set in and how did that all like yeah, evolve? It, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was crazy. Um, it's a very interesting thing. So um, I'm not necessarily as familiar with the time course that happens for people with, with MS. I think it's similar in that some people can experience a very quick onset of some symptoms that kind of come out of nowhere, whereas others, it's kind of a creeping. Um, little things start to go wrong bit by bit, and, and there can be something very, very similar in that range um, for those of us. So CIDP is chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, and it's essentially, um, for, for any of your listeners that aren't as familiar, it's essentially MS of the peripheral nervous system, right? So yes. where you get, yeah, you get demyelination that show up as those lesions and those problems in the brain and in the spinal cord, and so you're able to see that in MS with imaging. In CIDP, it is happening to the nerves in the periphery, so once they come out of the spinal cord and, and branch themselves out to reach and, and, and bring information back um, from the muscles and from, from the skin and from the fingers and all that good stuff. So Outside in. It can happen, yes. Outside in, exactly, exactly right. Um, so for CIDP, it's the same kind of thing in that you can have a big range. For some people, those symptoms, if it's if it started happening, if that autoimmune disease kicks in and your body starts attacking those nerves, for some people, it happens slowly over weeks, months, or years. And for others, it actually can happen really fast. What gets a little crazy is that there is a um, acute syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome that is kind of like a one-time autoimmune disease. It's not chronic. It doesn't stay. Your body doesn't continue to make the antibodies that attack you, but you become your your system becomes confused and starts, you know, seeing that myelin just like in MS, just like in CIDP, seeing that myelin as as an invader, as something that needs to be destroyed. Um, but it happens in most people in, in Guillain-Barre syndrome really, really fast and really abruptly. So for them, they can go from in Guillain-Barre syndrome, you can go from fine to completely paralyzed. Some people can't even move eyelids or on ventilators in, you know. 24 to 48 hours. It can happen really, really quickly. Terrifying. And what happened to me, it's absolutely terrifying. Um, it's one of these things where, you know, the, the, the need for ongoing disease-modifying drugs isn't there because once that initial attack is over, the body does not continue to attack the nerves, but it does so much damage on that front side that people can be, you know, in a really hard way, in a very difficult way, we're trying to recover from that attack for the rest of their lives. It's, it's, it's horrifying. And so there's this range between, you know, Guillain-Barre syndrome and, and CIDP as an ongoing disease. And the expectation is if you have Guillain-Barre syndrome, your symptoms come on really fast. And if you have CIDP, your symptoms come on really slow. And I ended up being kind of right in the middle. Um, mine presented as what is considered to be acute onset CIDP, meaning that 
it came on quickly, but quickly <laughs> was still slow for Guillain-Barre. And all that to say, you end up in this really unfortunate mid-range where nothing is presenting as quote-unquote textbook to the medical community when you're trying to figure this out. And everyone's trying to help. You know, I don't mean this as a, as a knock on the doctors that saw me or anything that was happening, but because nothing looked like anyone expected for either of those, you know, pots of information, um, for any of them really, because of course we did, we did imaging to make sure it wasn't MS as well. Um, there was a, there was a span of time of two weeks that it took me to go from fine to paralyzed where no one really knew what was going on. And so for me, it was a constant in and out of the hospital. I'd spend a few days, um, Everything started for me with very vague symptoms. I was at work and I went and I washed my hands and the water felt weird. My best description. It just felt really strange. It's not how water typically feels. Um, and I realized that there was kind of like a vague tingling in both of my hands and it felt really strange. And I was at work at the time. I work with um, physical therapists that, that specialized in neurological disease and recovery. And, you know, I was in the lab with, with my coworkers. And so we're talking it through and, you know, is this, is this a pinched nerve? Well, no, that doesn't make any sense. It's going to both arms, you know, whatever. So it's like, okay, well, we'll just kind of keep an eye on it. And the next day my feet went home. So I started to have my feet were tingling and, and feeling really strange. And the day after that, um, my tongue went home. And that was the one for me that, there's just something very visceral, like it's in my head, it's nearer to my brain. Like this isn't good. Right. Um, yeah, that must have been scary. It was just, it was just really bizarre. It was really, really strange. And you know, I reached out to my doctor. Um, went in their practice. She wasn't my my uh, PCP didn't wasn't able to get me in, but someone else in their practice. Everyone was wonderful. They wanted to see me, had me see a neurological specialist. By this point, it's like two in the afternoon on a Friday. So no one's available and it becomes, you know, we really think you need to go to, go to the ER. So I would end up being in the hospital through the weekend. Um, they wanted me to have, you know, they start doing all of the blood work and all of the things. And the um, neurologist that was on call at that point was someone that was familiar with, with CIDP. Um, he's a immunology specialist actually within the neuroscience field. And so he was thinking Yambre syndrome from the very beginning, but because it didn't very quickly progress to paralysis, then it became confusion. And I could tell that I was, things were not feeling right, that my legs weren't feeling as strong, but I was still passing all of the tests that they give you because they're, they're pretty crude. You know, they're not set up to, to pick up subtleties in what might be happening. Um, and that's just the nature of, you know, what can be done bedside. It's, it's, it's true of medicine. You're just not in a situation where you can bring in, we don't have, it's one of the parts of rehabilitation medicine that I had worked in. There are many people that are working on technology trying to bring, you know, greater specificity to things like diagnosis to the bedside, but you have to have, you know, uh, technologies that are easy for doctors to use and pull out of their pocket. And, you know, you're not going to wheel in some big thing for every single person that's there. It's just not practical in, um, in a, in a high setting um, with lots of uh, volume of people and all sorts of different things. So, you know, it was kind of watching firsthand some of the things that we'd always talked about um, on the research side of, of where we have gaps and where we have issues. And this is a really interesting thing to experience as the patient. Yeah, no That was crazy. But as the weekend went on, you know, we were like, okay, we want to do MRI, you know, the MRI, and so they did the full 
um, brain and spine MRI, which was a horrific experience for me, um, only because, and that's another point that was interesting for me, is that I've used MRI of the brain for a long time in my research. And so I'm very, very aware of how important it is to lay just absolutely completely still in that machine. You can create all sorts of, of issues with being able to get a good image if you move in even the slightest. And I am just desperately trying to lay still, and I couldn't. I had horrible back pain that eventually we would come to understand was this overnight really awful back pain that can develop that is um, nerve root pain and can be associated with which um, is often referred to as like the MS hug. It's related to that in some ways. That was starting for me, um, only overnight. So it would go away by, you know, 9 or 10 in the morning, unfortunately, right about the time when the doctors would start to do their rounds, right? Now I'm no longer in excruciating pain. But overnight, it was absolutely horrible. And things were happening, but they weren't necessarily in the eyes of the doctors that were there. And it just came, long story short, to after, you know, a weekend in the hospital and finally getting, um, they did what is called um EMG exam, which basically is looking at how are your nerves conducting information, how fast is information getting to um, your back being sent back and forth on those so, peripheral nerves. So, so and, comfortable. And, yeah, so comfortable, so comfortable. Um, I have used that in research for a long time. So for me, it was familiar, those electric shocks I've been giving to people for years. Right, and now it so came I was, back. I know, exactly. It was like, here's a, here's a dose here in medicine, my friend. But everything came back like right on the edge, but within the bounds of normal. Um, and so by the time that weekend was over, doctors, you know, the doctor discharged me and was like, you know, everything looks okay. Interestingly for me, just to add an additional layer of, of, of craziness in my own life, this all started 10 days before I was to be competing in Ironman Canada. So I'm a, I'm a marathoner, I'm a triathlete, I'm a crossfitter, do all this stuff, and I've been training for the better part of a year to do. So Ironman is a, a long triathlon. It's uh, 140.6 miles that you have 17 hours to finish. And I was going to Whistler, uh, British Columbia, to, to do Ironman Canada um, coming the next week. And so all of this is happening in that week before that. So. He tells me on Monday that, you know, we've, everything's okay, go home. And I'm like, great. Went home, immediately got on my bike because that's what you do. And just realized that, like, my legs are just, I'm able to bike, but it just doesn't feel totally right. And as soon as I tried to get off and run, I couldn't. I was going to land on my face. There was no chance. That put me back in the hospital the next day. They go through this time that the spinal tap, once again, spinal tap comes back and it's normal. I know now that it was like the very last value of normal for Guillain-Barre syndrome or for CIDP. What you're looking for is a abnormal level of protein in the spinal cord um, with the absence of other abnormal values. So everything else is fine, but if you have a high level of protein, it can be an indicator of that peripheral demyelination of that breaking down of the insulation that's happening elsewhere. And it was like, if the, and I think the normal range goes to a value of 45 and mine was 45. So it was right there on the edge. And so at that point, this is now Wednesday, um, doctors says, you know, there is, and I have, I have the discharge orders that say there is nothing neurologically wrong with you. They thought it at that point was some, um, degeneration of um, a few different discs and different vertebrae in my spine, you know, things that I know 
over time, by the time you're in your mid forties and you're active as, and do as much stuff as I do, like everybody's going to have a little something going on in their spine. So it wasn't tremendously surprising for me to hear that, but I, I guess that that was the only thing they could see. And so he's basically saying, well, maybe, you know, three different vertebrae in three different locations have simultaneously started to put pressure on nerves. And, you know, I mean, we're looking at each other and we're both like, we're both like, dude, no, (laughs) this is not, this is not a feasible response, but we didn't know. And so, you know, there's nothing neurologically wrong with you. And he told me what every single doctor I've ever had my entire life has told me, which is, you know, don't, don't go do that crazy race. Um, But of course, I felt like I had done my due diligence and I had had everything looked at that possibly could be. And I was a little bit in problem solver, overly optimistic land in my brain and um, said, okay, we'll just, we'll figure this out. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll stop happening as quickly as it started happening. And I got on a plane and I went to British Columbia. I went to Whistler. Good for you. I didn't Well, I mean, yes and no. Ignoring doctor's orders is not necessarily a great idea, um, particularly when what was happening, but we didn't really understand was that I was having a progressive paralysis, progressive demyelinating, damaging situation happening. It was just that it was starting slowly enough that it wasn't presenting, um, it wasn't being picked up by the tests that are currently available in sure. hospitals. Yeah, and they were normal. So everything looked normal. Even though I knew that I wasn't, right? I tried to run and I couldn't. I knew biking was felt weird. I tried to do like just squats, like just body weight squats, which is basically just sit down, stand up over and over again. And I could tell my legs didn't feel quite right. Like I could tell something was slightly off, but I was optimistic. <laughs> and I, you know, had a huge amount of, of friends and family and everyone that was flying out and joining us to do this big race and do this whole thing. And so I got on a plane and we went. Um, but things just very clearly, um, I just walking, I couldn't keep up. I couldn't keep up with Tony and my partner. We're trying to make our way through airports and I'm, my walking is getting slower and slower and slower. Um, so basically in the end by no matter what kind of, you know, um, magic I thought I was going to be able to pull together by the morning of, of what was supposed to be race day. Um, it was obvious that there was no chance that I should in any sort of safe way attempt to do anything. So I cheered on my friends that day, but that day in particular was where everything became very, very clear to me and to everyone that was out there with me that I was not okay. Um, there were moments of, I can remember in the morning I wanted to go, watch the swim and understandably some of my friends and family that were there to cheer me on were like, yeah, you're not in the swim right now, so we're going to sleep. <laughs> you can go do that. They dropped me off so I could cheer on my friends. And I was trying to make it from where I was watching the swim to where I was going to meet up with our crew um, to, to be the first spot we were going to watch um, them bike by. And at one point I had to cross the street. And I crossed, kind of jaywalked it. And so I step down from the curb. I walk across the street and I go try to step up on to the curb again. And I couldn't like, we're talking about inches, right? Like five inch top at top. And I ended up having, I ended up crawling over the curb and then I couldn't stand up once I was on my hands and knees. And so I crawled to a stop sign and pulled myself to standing and then continued walking to meet my friends. Like wow. things were not okay. <laughs> things were not okay. So by the end of the day, we cheered everybody in and 
you know, to, to get anywhere, it was then two people holding me up and no good. So we decided, um, I was like, well, I, we, I have to leave. You know, we had intended to have a vacation there afterwards and all this stuff. And it was like this, no, obviously. We have, we've reached the point of something's very wrong. Went to see a doctor in Whistler um, who then coordinated with um, Vancouver Medical Downtown. And basically they decided that what I should do is change my flight and drive to Vancouver. It was a few hours away, um, which is where we'd be flying out of anyway. Um, Vancouver General is basically next to the airport or at least very close by. And what I was told was when you get to the airport, if you can still breathe, get on the plane. <laughs> if you have any trouble breathing by that point, go to the hospital because they understood, you know, as an American citizen, insurance, all the things that the best thing I could do would be to get back to my yeah. own setting. But, you know, the, the, the biggest problem with at that point we're having what very looks very much like progressive paralysis, that it could be Guillain-Barre syndrome and that can, you know, come and, and clump um, your, your diaphragm, all the, the structures around breathing and become an issue. Thankfully, um, my breathing was not a problem. Get on the plane. It was an overnight flight. Um, we land, and I get in a, in, in, a, in a cab, go immediately to Northwestern Memorial Hospital downtown, which I know you are familiar with. And yeah. I, very, very, right? And I would end up, I would end up staying there um, between there and um, the inpatient rehab center, Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, which... I work at, which is its own interesting thing. Um, I would be there for more than three and a half months. So wow, it it looked like at that point Guillain-Barre syndrome. And by the time we got, by the time I was admitted at the ER, and we I'd been there for more than a couple of hours, I was paralyzed from the chest down. So at that point where I can't move anything, and now I'm failing every test, right? Now it's like, oh, okay, now it's Guillain-Barre syndrome, is what everyone thinks. Um, and that took a number of months of, you know, first thing we tried. There are only a few, there are literally two um, FDA-approved frontline or first-line treatments for Guillain-Barre syndrome. One is called IVIG. The other is um, plasmapheresis. And so... You know, the, the literature looks like they're basically equally effective in those in whom they are effective. So for pretty much everyone, you can do um, intravenous and your globulin treatment bedside through a regular IV. So they hooked me up to that. We did a, a typical five-day course of that within two weeks, I want to say, after that five-day course finally ended. So I think I was in that hospital on that front end for three or four weeks that first time. They transferred me over to um, the Ability Lab. You know, I was asked when they were sending me over to, to the hospital that I had been working at for more than a decade. Yeah, I was, was going like, to ask, like, was that weird to be with your colleagues? You know, yeah, it was interesting. I had a choice. Um, everyone was amazing. And they said it. They told me, like, I could have been admitted under a pseudonym if I wanted to be. I could have been admitted in, you know, I could have chosen basically what floor um, they were very, very flexible with me in understanding that some people might want to be very far away from the people they know best. For me, I wanted to be near the people that knew me. Um, the way that our hospital is set up, another interesting thing at that point was that we had just moved into this brand new, beautiful facility. I was so lucky. Um, we had only moved in less than three months before I got sick. So we had we were just kind of getting used to this new setup. And for research, um, all the researchers are in the big 
open gym where everyone does rehab. So they want us to be as close to patients as possible so that we can see the challenges that our colleagues, our clinicians, our, our physical therapists are having with their patients. So, you know, if it can make, you know, give inspiration to different ideas of how, you know, it's, it's one thing to have, to have people tell you what their challenges are as a patient or as a clinician. It's another thing to see it firsthand. And so there is a big push to have us all be as close as possible so we can kind of see that on a regular basis, which I really appreciate. Um, but it's interesting because then my desk was right in the middle of everything um, of where I would be doing rehab if I was going to be on that floor. Um, I decided that that's what I wanted. I wanted the people that knew me best to see me struggling as opposed to people that were kind of like, wait, hey, is that doesn't too work here? You know, and that's a personal, it's a personal choice. Everyone's going to make a different choice on that one for what, what might be um, most comfortable for them. It was also great. It was wonderful that, you know, they're so close that people from um, SRA lab were coming over while I was at Northwestern to see, you know, where do I want to be? What, what do I want to have going on? And both, both sides were, were really open to helping make whatever would be the best situation happen. Um, and there's no question, like I, I benefited from the fact that I was Northwestern faculty and I was a researcher at, at the inpatient hospital that I was trying to get into, you know, that, that's something that, that was a great benefit to me at that time. Not that I think either one gives a different level to anyone that comes in the door, but we all understand that when you're working with your own colleagues, when your friends are involved of, of trying to help, um, it can, it, it can be a benefit. And if, if nothing else, it just kept it feeling comfortable and like home to me sure. all the way through, which is enormous as a patient. I was, I was of a, a huge benefit to that. So yeah, so we moved over. Um, I would go over to, to the ability lab and try to start rehab, but I, I was going downhill. We couldn't, you know, by, by kind of sheer force of will when I first got there. Um, and part of that is just personality of like, okay, we're going to attack this thing, you know, and I'm an athlete. So I'm thinking that, you know, they're telling me I'm going to get three or four hours a day of, of physical therapy. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, then I'll be in the gym by myself another three or four hours a day. And it's like, sure. the reality is, going to, no, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, but slowly it became where I could almost not even get out of bed for, you know, the time that I was supposed to be there. And we realized that this was not progressing the way that it should have been on the other side of, you know, an effective treatment. And so, you know, my, my physical therapist actually went to bat for me huge. My doctors at that point were kind of willing to wait it out a little longer. And she went into um, one of the meetings that they were having, the weekly scheduled, you know, assessment of my case and just went in their arms to the teeth with numbers of, let me, let me show you all the things that are getting worse and how they're getting worse. And by the end of that meeting, um, she had made it so that they were, were transferring me back to Northwestern. And actually, she would later win, a, win an internal award at the hospital for the, the level of care that she gave me um, for, for being willing to um, step up and, and say, you know, to her superiors, basically, like, no, I, I don't think this is right. Um, and to their credit, they were willing to listen. They respected her um, experience and the data that she was showing them to, bring, to send me back over. It was amazing. So they send me back to Northwestern, and um, at this point, they try the other frontline treatment, um, plasmapheresis, which is people can think of it as kind of like getting dialysis, just from the standpoint of you're you're running your blood through a machine that then separates the cells from the liquid. And the idea is that the liquid portion of the blood, the plasma, is where the antibodies that are attacking the nerves are residing. 
And so what you do is you collect all that, that liquid portion, you collect it in a bag and you throw it all away. Um, so you just get rid of the portion of the blood that, that, that carries the stuff that might be attacking. And so then you get infused with um, either a donor product or a synthetic uh, liquid portion back in. And once we started that, by the third treatment of that, I could like start to move a little. It definitely was starting to do something. So we knew we had landed on the right treatment. So it was another two weeks in our doctor. Once that was completely through, I was showing better back over to the ability lab, get back at it with rehab, making a lot of progress. About 10 to 14 days go by, I start to go paralyzed again. So this back and forth happened multiple times. And by the time we tried a few different things, but by the time, um, you know, we tried to discharge me in late October and I was home again for maybe four days and again, started to go paralyzed again. And that's the point. And that's really the only way to know that what we were dealing with wasn't persistent beyond gray, because sometimes it can take like the, the idea is that if you are, if you see relapses, beyond eight weeks, then that's the cue that, no, this is not the acute Guillain-Barre syndrome. This is actually the chronic. You are continuing to make more antibodies that are that are attacking you, chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy. So by December, we knew that this wasn't Guillain-Barre. This was CIDP, and this was uh, a, a, different, a different thing that we were going to have to be dealing with. So that front end for me was a little different than it can be for some people with CIDP, but I say that knowing that there are going to be people listening to this that have had a very similar experience to mine. They may have had an experience that moved even faster on the front end than mine did. There is just such a range, and it's a hard thing in rare disease because doctors learn from textbooks at first, right? And then they learn from experience. That's just the nature of the only way things work. And so if you have something that's rare, the opportunity to have that learning from experience happening in your professional life may not happen very often. So you're kind of left with what you learn from a textbook. And a textbook is never going to be able to in a rare disease that actually does have a range of possibilities, which I think in so many cases they do, it's not going to be able to capture that. And so it can just be a really challenging time for both the patient and the doctor to try to figure out what's going on. Yes. Um, and that can, leave, it can leave people really struggling. And I know for a lot of people, it can have them feeling that they can't trust the medical community. And I get that. I really do. I understand where that comes from in, some, in so many cases. But I think, I think we also need to give a little grace to the fact that not everything is known. And I, I think that's something that when you come from research and you come from medical research, you're aware of. But... A lot of times, maybe if you've never had anything go wrong for you as a person medically, there might be the perception that, you know, whatever happens, you go to the doctor and they fix it, right? right. And, and some things they can, right? Some things they can, but there are a lot of things that are still works in progress, and it can really have you feeling like nobody knows what they're doing. Well, I can appreciate that. So this was, a long, this was a long struggle to get to the point of saying we thought we knew what the diagnosis was, but then at that point, you know, it's, it's being discharged from the hospital and what does recovery look like, but it's recovery layered with a chronic disease on top. So how does that work? And it was an interesting road from there on for sure. You are certainly gracious in offering and extending that leeway, if you will, to the doctors and 
it does help, I think, listeners to recognize that, yes, doctors learn from textbooks and then hopefully experience, but not everyone has the mm-hmm. same experience, right? Or encounters right. such an anomaly of symptoms and trying right. to figure everything out. And then in your case, with everything being normal, right? Or right, right. on that brink of normal, I had a exactly. similar experience of like 12 years of symptoms. Oh my God. And doctors telling me, you know, that we don't see anything. Everything's normal. This is all in your head. And I'm like, but I know that something's not right. And it's so hard to be that continual advocate. And so kudos to you, right. For continuing to speak up and own that. And then clearly once it became visible, it's easier for people to see and believe. It is, but it's, it's hard. And you know, this too, um, you know, I, I was not in a place like I was <laughs> coming in like, you don't understand how sick you were. Like you were bad news. You know, I was, I was paralyzed. I was, I was miserable. And it's really, really hard to be an advocate for yourself in that state. I was very lucky, very lucky that I have a sister that refused to leave my side. And for weeks, that first month, at Northwestern, she never went home. She never went home. She has three kids and a husband in the suburbs of Chicago. She slept there every single night. And she is a teacher and she is organized and she will not be, you know, put put aside by anyone. And she was my advocate along with my family. You know, it was my sister named Abdul, but no one under 65 years old or over 65 years old was allowed to spend the night in the hospital, which, you know, sent my parents <laughs> home to my apartment every night. Um, and I'm lucky that I had that family that was not willing to be, unless they pushed around, they were just, they're going to ask questions. They're going to weigh things down. You know, she and my, and my partner, um, had both, you know, he was also being an enormous advocate for me. And the two of them, you know, since we were in Canada have been constantly, you know, Googling my symptoms, trying to figure out what the hell was going on and talking to each other behind their back, my back and everything else. Um, I had them there to step up. And then I had my friends and colleagues from the hospital that were telling my family, okay, look out for this, ask for this, push for this. I, I fully understand that not everybody has that. And and it's the, the awful thing, but the real thing is that when you are dealing with a situation where your health is not right and you know it's not right, whether you are expert in this area or not, you have to become expert as fast as you can. And it sucks. It sucks. But to be able to truly be an advocate for yourself, at minimum, ask questions. At minimum, when if doctors are saying something that doesn't make sense, and you don't even know what you don't know, say that out loud. I, I don't even know what you're saying to me right now. Like, don't be afraid to do that because, unfortunately, being our own advocates is sometimes the only way that we can really move things forward if and when we know that something isn't right. And it can be really hard. And I know that that's different by race and ethnicity, that people are, you know, I'm a, I'm a white woman who was a faculty member. Like, there were a lot of things that made it so that when I didn't think something was right, people were more apt to listen to me. And those are, those are in-baked problems that we have in general that can make it hard, but it doesn't mean that we don't need to keep opening our mouths and trying. Sure. Um, I, went through, I went through eight neurologists over 
over the course of the time that I was at Northwestern. And part of that was straight up luck. Part of that is the fact that, you know, every neurologist has a two-week span of the month that they are the injured. They are the person that is working inpatient, that they are responsible for every new uh, patient that comes in. And just because of the nature of how I would crash every two weeks, every time I was readmitted into Northwestern, I was readmitted with a different neurologist as head of my care. And so that just happened to make it that eventually I had a neuromuscular specialist who was put in charge of me that once I had come through enough, the head of neurology came to me and said, okay, we have looked at your, you know, we've looked at what's happening and we are putting this person in charge. And from that point on, everything changed for me. She was the one that knew to try plasmapheresis and to stick with it and what was happening. And she's my neurologist ever since, but it took eight. <laughs> and some of those, like, you know, where the point at which um, I had a, a, a neurologist whose specialty is oncology, they happened to be the one that was, you know, on call at that time. That's not their fault. But my, my problem is not that person's specialty. You know, they're not going to be able to discern the subtleties of what was happening. And you can just end up in a really unfortunate situation as a patient if you don't have other doctors that are willing to step up or if you don't recognize and have other people around you that are digging in and trying to figure out what's going on as well. So it's, it's frustrating. Um, it requires a lot of work that no one feels like they should have to do, and I get it, um, but I think that's just something that we all need to be aware of, is that when once something starts to go wrong with our own system, we're just in a place where the very best thing we can do for ourselves is to become a student of that and a student of, of what are our options, what are what's happening, and be very aware of how our body feels and never feel bad about stepping up and saying, this isn't right, something feels wrong you know, or, or whatever it might take. So important. Thank you for reminding everyone of that. And even of those nuances, right. And the, and the luck of the draw that when you show up at ER, the doctor you get happens to have a particular specialty that may or may not have any clue what's going on and, and that it just takes, sometimes it takes time and sometimes more time than you want it to, but ultimately, as you continue to push and advocate for yourself, yes, hopefully you can get down the path of healing. And so how did you even come to find HSCT? Sure. So at this point, actually, that's all three years ago. By November of 2017 is when I was discharged and I had, you know, the diagnosis of CIDP. And at that point, I was more, you know, I I knew what was happening. I was becoming well enough. It took me months before I was in a place where I even, like, I'm an avid reader. I devour books. And even though I had spent months and months and months in the hospital, it took until the last two weeks in the hospital before I was feeling well enough where I even wanted to pick a book up. So for me to be doing all of this, becoming a student of your disease that I'm advocating, I will tell you the first three months of my own disease, that wasn't happening. I wasn't the one doing it. That was my sister. That was the people around me. That was, you know, being lucky enough to pull from some knowledge that I had of, you know, how the nervous system works from my, from, from what I do as a profession, but I wasn't a specialist in peripheral neuromuscular disease. So I was only just starting at that point to kind of catch up and to understand, you know, what what's going on. So for the first 
probably almost the first year of, of my recovery, we were following what, you know, my doctor, um, we found that, that uh, plasma paresis worked for me. And what we were trying to figure out was how often do I need it and what else do I need? So we started on uh, daily steroid, which for me, I respond to steroids. There's good and bad with that. Steroids have their own side effects that are basically um, not if but when in terms of what's going to happen and, and problems are going to develop. But they can be a really powerful um, immunosuppressant and keep more attacks from happening or at least be um, slow it down. And so a combination for me of daily steroid, and we started with once a week plasmapheresis, which is actually a fairly aggressive attack at this. It's a, not a lot of people get plasmapheresis that frequently. We started with that, and then over the course of, of about nine months, we were trying to see if we could spread plasmapheresis out the time frame in between. So we do three months um, with a week apart, and then we would go for three months and try 10 days in between each session, and then we tried two weeks. Um, all of that time, I was, you know, the first three months of that, I was still not working and doing kind of PGOT um, outpatient full time. And I, as an athlete, just was kind of like, okay, my job right now is to make, is to rebuild my muscles. You know, my, I was, I had lost like 30 pounds um, from my race weight. So I was a skeleton of a human being and had no muscle to speak of. And so just, you know, understanding how the system works, like muscles don't grow on their own. They have to, you have to, you have to work them. Um, did as much as I could and just kind of was constantly balancing that, trying not to do too much, trying not to push too hard, but knowing that I have a, a high capacity for what I'm able to do. And thankfully that was true on the other side. So did a lot of recovery that way and had really strong recovery physically by the time. So by October of 2018, so 11 months after I was discharged, I actually ran the Chicago Marathon again. Well, and okay. Ran it I, I was, I, it was a gold mine. I was able to do it. I had physical therapists that are working with me. I was, you know, making, wanting to make sure it happened. And I was able to, which is, which is huge. And I get that not everyone, you know, you can, you can want recovery to happen and you can be working as hard as you can. And you can be thinking, I want to move my foot as hard as you can. But if those connections, if those nerves aren't healing, it's not going to happen. So I don't want to act like, you know, just hard work makes, right. makes everything happen. It certainly you. doesn't if you don't put the work in. Um, so it was a combination. So some of those things were going really well. I, I experienced good recovery, but at the same time, I was starting to have more um, chronic fatigue type symptoms. I was starting to have problems with my vision. I was starting to have problems with my hearing. Things were starting to creep in that weren't great. And once we had gotten to the point where we had tried to put, you know, 21 days between plasma paresis, we realized that, you know, things had been going downhill for a while and moved it back. So we went back to plasma paresis once a week and wanted to see if that would help kind of clear things up. And it, and it did help. But some of these pervasive problems, the, the fatigue, the issues, the and I started to get migraines, the stimular migraines, which are wacky, crazy things. Um, for me, it's a feeling of if I move my eyes, I feel nauseous. I feel like the world, like it's a, it's a feeling of my stomach dropping over and over again. Boom, 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 boom. Like it's, I can't even function. And so I'll go for... It started with having an entire week in bed where I couldn't move and I couldn't get out of bed. And we thought I had some horrible flu and I ended up, you know, they sent me to the hospital to find out if I had meningitis and all of these things. That type of stuff started to happen. So it was this weird intersection of really good physical recovery, but the other chronic symptoms that were starting to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So while this was going, I am, of course, now 
looking further into, okay, what are our options? And my doctor is fantastic in us discussing what else. And, and I have an appreciation now where CIDP is interesting in that you can go into remission. Some people do. And sometimes after being on um, steroids for a little bit, you go into remission. Or after being on um, plasmapheresis for X amount of months, you can go into remission. And so I have an appreciation now in retrospect for the fact that when we were at the very front end of this, I think my doctor saw the possibilities as being larger for what we could do and what might happen. And as more time is going on, and I'm not spontaneously going into remission, and I'm not at a point where we're able to, you know, spread plasmapheresis apart or do something less aggressive, um, we're both looking at, okay, what are other options? So monoclonal antibody treatment, there's rituxan that is out there um, that has been beneficial to, to some people with CIDP. And that's where I'm also starting to look at, you know, other things. And I became aware of Dr. Richard Burt's work at Northwestern. Um, my, my, because I'm at Northwestern as well, because that's where my doctor is, um, she is actually, for the trials that he's done on CIDP, my, my neurologist is the one that has done the blinded assessments before and after for the EMG test in particular. Fascinating. So she's aware. Yeah, so she was aware. Um, she was very hesitant to bring it up herself, and I think that's because it's a very aggressive treatment. I get that. And particularly on the front end, we hadn't tried the things that are in her bag of tricks yet. You know, but as time goes on, I start to bring that up. We talk about it um, with her. We talk about, you know, what are our other options? What do we look at? And with everything starting to kind of degrade on me, and as well, there are a couple things, and I just want to toss this out there in case for, for other people with CIDP. There are a few of the antibodies that attack us that have actually been identified, um, and there are tests that can be done. My doctor sent my blood work to the Mayo Clinic who can do some um, antibody testing. And we discovered that I have a couple of known antibodies that attack particular places on the nerve. Um, Neurofacin is a, is a protein um, involved in, in how the nerve functions. And I have antibodies that attack two particular neurofacin proteins. One is called NF-155. The other is called NF-140. Um, there's also ones called anti-mag. There's a few different ones out there. Right now, there isn't a ton that doctors can do with that information, but what's starting to emerge is that some of these newer drugs or newer treatments are showing themselves to potentially be more beneficial to people that have particular antibodies that we know that have been identified. So helpful. And Thank you. Absolutely. So that helped to, to, to kind of guide our decision. One of the things that is started to understand about NF-155 is that people that that gets attacked tend to be younger. They tend to be those that don't respond to IVIG, which is absolutely what happened with me. Um, and you tend to see in those people a resting tremor as one of their symptoms, which I also have as well. Um, with NF-140, what they're coming to understand is that that is often associated also with a bit of a resting tremor, but also with um, damage that can happen to cranial nerves. And so when I, we started looking at the migraines that I'm experiencing, the drops in blood pressure, those types of issues, those things seem consistent. And so it can be helpful, as more is known, to, to know if you have those antibodies because it might help guide what, what treatments to try. So at that point... 
rituxan, this monoclonal, monoclonal antibody, um, was, was showing itself to potentially be helpful, particularly with people um, with NF-155. So we decided that our next course of treatment should be to try that. Now, that's one of those that you have to, you know, and she was one that was willing to go to bat with my insurance company. And there was months long of, of um, talking to them and trying to convince them because it's something that runs at least $40,000 a dose and you need to. Um, I know those with, with MS are very familiar with these types of situations and very mm-hmm. expensive infusions. Mm-hmm. So at the, same, yeah, at the same time we were doing the dance with the insurance company, I was also talking to her and interested and had come across and had done you know, my reading on um, HSCT and Dr. Burt's program and the fact that the first trial that he had done in CIDP, as well as what he had seen in, in MS, had, had been done. And so I reached out to him. He actually sat down with my neurologist. They discussed my case. And then he and I and my partner went in, and he was willing to have what I think we were in his office for an hour and a half at least, if not two hours, talking about um, the possibility and what would go into it. And at that point, he was not their their phase two trial, he was not in a place where he was, excuse me, I think it would be a phase three trial at that point. I think they had just finished phase two, um, but it hadn't been published yet. Um, He was not recruiting for um, an actual, to be part of an actual experimental trial, which as a researcher, I was like, if I can contribute to science, I would like to do that. Knowing knowing that I could be, you know, the dice could roll and I could be put into placebo and and not get, or, you know, get the the standard um, treatment group. But at minimum, we discussed, you know, my case and whether it was possible. And basically, it was decided at that point he was for it. He was, he was, he thought I was a good candidate. He was definitely willing to step forward. And at that point, we would have had to have asked for like a compassionate use exemption instead of being in because he was between um, being in an actual trial. But he was willing to do that. But everyone decided that what made the most sense was to try rituxan first. And by the time he and I were sitting down, um, the insurance company had come through and they said, finally, yes, they would do it. So that was March or April of 20, where are we now? 2018, 2019. And I did tried Rituxan. It didn't work. I started to go back to my, you know, we were starting to see progressive paralysis. And so by May, we knew it wasn't working. I reached out to him. And by that point, that gap in between, he had decided to go on sabbatical and he'd shut down his lab. (laughs) So at this point, I am, you know, a full year out from where I had started, but we have tried all the things and, um, we're, we're not seeing remission happen. You know, we're not seeing a change. We're seeing, problems continue to come up despite an aggressive um, set of therapies. And, you know, both of us have looked at the other possibilities that are out there. There are older treatments, things like methyltrexate, things like itoxin used in a uh, low-dose setting that none of it is really encouraging in terms of the the research that's out there. And there's a lot of side effects associated um, with those. So none seemed really the way to go. Um, But at least here in the U.S. Um, or at Northwestern, it was not. It was no longer an option. So I started then researching who else in the United States, what else is happening. Um, there is another 
trial that's being done, that's being run um, by the University of Denver and the University of Washington and the French Hopkins Cancer Center in conjunction. Um, anyone with CIDP in the United States interested in, in investigating that, they are still recruiting last I looked. So um, clinicaltrials.gov, you can find information on that. Um, when I reached out and talked to them, because I have had such good motor recovery, I'm in a weird spot in research. Um, I basically was, was found to be by them too high functioning. They're in a tough spot. I get it. I might respond, you know, HSCT, as we know, doesn't heal the nerves, right? It doesn't heal the lesion itself. Correct. That's not what it does. It stops the body from continuing to attack itself. So what really should be the marker of whether it works is whether or not you need disease-modifying drugs to keep additional attacks from happening. That is the only thing that HSCT with chemo can actually change. But what we know can happen is that once those nerves aren't being attacked anymore, they are able to heal on their own. The opportunity to heal on their own happens. And so that's where you see improvements in people's ability to walk and their ability to feel their fingers and hands in, you know, hopefully in my case, in the resolution of things like blood pressure problems and migraines, like those changes are secondary to what HSCT can actually do. But when you're trying to get FDA approval for something and you're trying to show really promising results, you need the sexiest data you can get to put it quite simply. And I understand. Yes, indeed. It's, it's just in order to even have the chance to get it to a larger population of people, as a researcher, you really have to be thoughtful about where you put, because you only have so much money that you're working with on those early early yeah, trials. Right. And if you do well, you won't have a second trial. You won't have a, a next phase. Um, and so I, I'm not a good, you know, my, my six minute walk test is not going to improve that much where, from where I've been able to get back to, even if we're able to go from, you know, daily steroids and weekly plasma paresis to none of that. So for those things, I'm not a good candidate. And so over and over again, I found that that was the case. You know, that's the only trial in the United States. Um, for HSCT that I am aware of, um, specific to CIDP, I tried reaching out to many different doctors who are working on HSCT with MS and talking to them about using me as pilot data, as, you know, hey, let's try this in CIDP, and then you can use that as your, you know, grant pitch to, to expand your program and go into CIDP. And while many of them were open to that opportunity, um, the, the institutions that they worked for weren't necessarily in a place that they were willing to put, you know, funds behind that and to make that happen. And then coronavirus happened. And that makes a big difference yeah. in the research priorities of what's out there. I understand, like, that's a major, major thing that we're tackling um, as scientists, as researchers, and it shifted um, a lot of people's um, attention in terms of what they're studying, as well as many labs couldn't function for long periods of time. You right. can't be bringing people in, doing tests and starting projects. And so all of that brought me around to looking more seriously at Clinica Ruiz. I found them, you know, in the process of this, of course, I became aware sure. that there were you know, standalone options in Russia and in Mexico in particular 
that I didn't have to qualify for as a research subject. And I just needed to prove that I was healthy enough for, you know, it's kind of a flip where I was almost too healthy <laughs> to do a research project. As just a clinical patient, the healthier you are, the better, right? When you're talking about going in and, and having HSCT done. And so um, it really took a push from my partner to say, I think we really need to do this now. I think you need to look at this now. I was so overwhelmed by the cost that I was not willing, you know, at this point, by this point, I had lost my job. So I've been out of work for months. Oh. I don't have an income anymore. Yeah. Um, I, you know, when you're, when you're, when you have now, I can go now, some of these vestibular migraines last for a month. Oh my gosh. You can't function under that circumstance. Like, yeah. you know, that's a no fault of my employer. Like we had looked at everything. I felt like I had, you know, was tapped out on um, all of the options that we could come up with for the United States. And I have to say that everything that happened and has happened this year with, um, with coronavirus also really brought to mind for me how much managing my disease was away from the ordinary. And I guess what I mean by that is everyone's quarantined, right? Everyone's locked down. And so as someone that, you know, on steroids, I am someone that is immunocompromised. And so was very aware of, you know, having to be um, extra protective for myself. Um, and of course, as, as quarantine goes on and the world starts to realize that, you know, we're all working, you know, everyone that's working is working virtually, and it happens to be in my life. My partner, um, he, he's able to work virtually, he's able to work from home for the first time ever. He'd always been someone that it was, you know, absolutely mandatory for him to be in the office all day. Um, he also runs a um, and owns a, a winery with his father out of Healdsburg, um, Sonoma County, California. And, you know, they're a small business, like every small business um, in this environment right now. There's a lot going on. They're struggling. And, you know, eventually it just really made sense and he could work from anywhere to go out to California and kind of work both jobs at the same time to be hands-on with the winery um, after he did his day job on the computer all day. And it, it made perfect sense. He absolutely needed to go and do that. I couldn't join him, not just because of our concern over, you know, a flight at that point, like sure. four hours in a plane is a scary thing. But because of my treatment regimen, you know, I need to be back in the hospital in Chicago right. every seven weeks. And with coronavirus, we extended it to 10, um, 10 days. But that's the max I can really do without starting to see notable. And I see a little bit of, of nerve damage. I start to get sensory problems at 10 days. But we were trying to manage... Um, the risk reward of so often being at the hospital with all of this going on. Course, so going yeah. three times instead of four made sense. But um, we, I looked into, you know, okay, can I do this from out in, in Sonoma County? Is there somewhere I can get this treatment? Um, we actually are lucky enough to, to have a, a vacation house that we do as, a, as an income property in Montana. And Montana has really low levels of coronavirus. Like, could we do, could I get out of downtown urban Chicago with, you know, its higher rates of infection and everything else? Could I go somewhere else? And the answer is no. The answer is for plant 
this in particular, um, it is it is just a tricky thing. It has to be, you know, prescribed by my doctor. So basically, I would have to go through the process of getting a neurologist in California or in Montana. That person could, on their own evaluation, decide that, you know, and this could definitely happen with me as someone that's high-functioning CIDP in terms of motor. They could look at me and say, either, I don't think you have this disease, or... I don't think you need the same treatment regimen. And if that were to happen, that could immediately be a situation where my, my insurance could use that to deny <laughs> continuing to give me, you know, the treatment I need here in Chicago. So Which it is wasn't so worth- expensive. Yeah. So expensive. So expensive. I mean, we're talking um, you know, a month's worth out of a month a month of treatment out of pocket for me is about um twenty it would be twenty thousand dollars around that. So it's just, that's just not possible. Um, so it just, it, it brought to, it so clearly that I wasn't just, you know, like everyone else who is immunocompromised and needing to be very careful in, in their own home and quarantining in their own home. Um, I couldn't go anywhere. I am very much tied to Chicago. And because, you know, if I were to go somewhere, like needing to then come back and quarantine for X amount of days, like when you're on a schedule that you need to be in the hospital every seven to 10 days for this treatment, like there was just no way to do it. that it remotely made sense to go anywhere else, but to be here. Um, so I spent a bunch of, of this span of time this spring by myself, um, you know, not seeing anyone who had really crappy weather and we weren't in a place where anyone could really get together outside yet. So it was, it, it clarified the, um, the limitations that my current regimen of what I need for my disease and managing it. And, you know, we were already knowing that in all of this, I'm having all of these migraines and all of these problems and all of these things that are continuing and, and making it impossible to, you know, be a productive member of society to move forward and find a new job or to do something or, or whatever. None of that's possible with all of the things that, that are happening with my symptoms. And then I can't go anywhere um, as well as being terrified of the fact that, you know, how dependent I am on my insurance. You know, I have tapped out my, all of my savings to just cover, you know, my, my yearly out of pocket. And, you know, I've had good insurance through all of this, of but course. even with everybody who's knows, right. It, it just, you end up, you know, tens of, if not twenties of thousands of dollars um, can be gone very, very quickly um, trying to, to keep up and manage. So all of that factored into the wane of where I had originally looked at you know, the cost at what is now, um, what is it, $54,500 to get treatment. And I think it's approximately the same whether we're looking at um, Clinica Ruiz in Mexico or whether we're looking at um, the, the clinic in Moscow. Um, that, that number, though daunting, when you compare it to, you know, the amount that has already gone into the last three years of treatment and looking at a lifetime forward. <laughs> Correct. And not having that expense going forward. And having that expense and not knowing if it's going to continue to work. Um, what was effective before just stopped being effective. And since we already know that I've tapped out everything that works for everyone else, you know, the small number of options available, it just became more and more clear that this option of, of um, high intensity chemotherapy and HSCT really made sense. And that the cost really shouldn't be the thing that's the barrier, um, that there are reasons and ways to try to make it happen. So um, I think, you know, coronavirus kind of helped clarify that for me, as well as the fact of looking forward over the next year 
uh, year and a half, you know, we don't know what it's going to take to get a vaccine, to have all sorts of things that are available, you know, going into fall and winter again um, here in, in North America and here in Chicago. I'm going, I know I'm going back into a situation where I'm not going to be able to see people by sitting outside the way we have been and the way we've found to be able to have, you know, actual physical, some contact of seeing friends, you know, spread out on someone's deck or on someone's roof or, or whatever, those things were all going to be going back inside again. Um, and I really was like, if I'm going to be back by myself again, wouldn't it be amazing to be doing that while I'm recovering from this treatment and maybe giving myself an option of actually being a person again on the other side, instead of waiting and going through another quarantine by myself to wait to get to the other side of where everyone maybe, you know, hopefully we will get to the point where we're able to be more ourselves again and mingling and actually in restaurants and all those things. And then to have myself go through it again and go through HSCT then and have to quarantine when no one else is was kind of like, okay, that doesn't, that doesn't make a lot of sense either. So it all kind of came together as, as the reasons to, to do this now and why, but I had my, I certainly had my concerns um, when we were like, okay, let's look seriously at, um, at Clinique Ruiz. I was worried, you know, I, I mean, I can remember when I first had my first inpatient or sorry, outpatient. So at her clinic with my doctor, so the first time I'm seeing her in her office and not in the hospital. And we're talking about, you know, what we're doing moving forward and all that good stuff. And I remember distinctly her saying to me, like, don't, don't go off and go to like Mexico and pay to have, you know, some crazy, some crazy thing done. And I remember laughing and being like, of course I won't. Like that's insane. Of course I won't do that. Um, but it's amazing three years later, for both of us, when you have gone through and done our due diligence, and I feel like both my neurologists and I have done this, of trying everything, of looking at the research, of looking at what's available now, of where I am, of how my disease progressed. I mentioned before, like, now we know, you know, I'm not quickly going into remission. I am not looking like one of those people that were able to treat this for a little while and then taper off of what we're doing. By the time we got to now, and I was talking to her again, you know, even even when a year prior, um, when I talked to Dr. Bird, like I mentioned, like she had gotten, she evolved from don't do something crazy and don't, I, I, you know, you're so, she was so worried about the risks associated and felt like we really had a chance for me to recover well. Um, a year later, she was willing to back me on like going through the procedure at Northwestern recognizing that, you know, we, we didn't have as many tools in the toolbox anymore. We'd gone through them. There were the options weren't there anymore. So she evolved in her seeing of, of the risk reward as I did. And so it was the same once I was looking at, you know, whether Mexico or, or, or Russia, um, she was supportive as long as we both felt that they were able to be truly putting forth the same quality of care and the same um, potential efficacy. Of, of the results that we had seen at, at Northwestern. And sure. so the fact that they finally, you know, he, Dr. Burt was able to finally get that phase two trial and CIDP published this past summer. So while all that was going on, you know, that was an additional bit of evidence with those 60 individuals with CIDP yeah. um, that he was able to, to choose to um, run his treatment on and then follow for five years. And 
for me, we started calling and talking to um, the, the administration and then the doctors at Clinique Louise, and they were very willing to get their doctors on the phone with me. And that was one of the most impressive things is that I had gone through and, you know, so I've got Dr. Burke's protocol in front of me, as well as the literature from Russia. And there are, you know, individual um, case studies that have happened in Germany and many other places. And so I kind of combined what I knew about what specifically was being done, exactly how the protocol details, as far as I could tell, worked at all of those different locations. Um, what the safety protocols were, what needs to be tracked, what the concerns were. And for, a, I don't know, I think we were on the phone for an hour um, with the doctors at Clinica Louise, just went through and I asked every single question I had to try to understand how close their protocol is to what's been published um, more broadly and um, how, you know, how efficacious they are finding their own um, things to be, being aware that, you know, I have my own questions for any for-profit location that if you aren't, and they have published in scientific literature, which makes a big difference. But if you're just telling me your results, like, I don't know if you're cherry picking, you know, I don't know if you're making this look more, more better than it, than not more better. Ah, good grammar. <laughs> you're making this look better than it actually is. Um, but I really, by the end of that conversation, I went through and just everything I could come up with to solidify that one, this doctor was not just, you know, it was definitely very, very clear that they understood not just they not just that they had memorized their own protocol, but when I could ask specific questions about, you know, they don't do they don't use RATG, for example, which is one of the drugs that is used in um, at the Northwestern protocol. Right. And asking them specifically why they make that choice. And he had an answer for why they make that choice. Part of it is what I was told is, you know, related to potential side effects and that they had not seen they've seen so many um, issues in terms of the, the um, intensity of side effects relative to not seeing much difference in the efficacy when they took it away, that for them, it wasn't worth the risk reward. It was a, right. it was a, it was a thoughtful answer that came from a place of knowledge and not just, I don't know, it's just what we do, you know? So yeah, there right. were, they're they, very transparent. They're very transparent. They were, every question I had, had a thoughtful, you know, scientific thought through kind of answer. Even if it was, no, we don't do that. It was at least they could tell me why they don't. I, and we don't know at this point exactly which protocol is better. You know, like all I know is this is what Northwestern does in detail. That doesn't mean that that is the one that will always be better. And certainly in the way that, that the numbers are looking and what both are reporting, everybody is seeing approximately 85% um, cure rate. So the efficacy does not look tremendously different um, between the two. And so it had, I had, I had much more confidence by the end of that conversation. I was kind of like, okay, I really do feel like these people know what they're doing. This isn't like, you know, I'm, I'm running off to Tijuana and getting, you know, butt implants that they might put in backwards. Like there are more stories everywhere, right? Of, of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't sometimes give confidence to say I'm going to Mexico to get this medical treatment. But, um, those conversations and their willingness to have them, was really, really helpful in feeling confident in the choice and saying, okay, I think that they are going to be doing this as safely and as um, efficaciously as, as, as can be done. And it's for me right now, they are the option that is the most reasonable to be able to get to. You know, the reality for someone in the United States right now, 
um, is that Russia isn't an option. We can't go there. And right. knowing the deep knots that I do between those between those protocols right now, I think I would choose the um, the outpatient option of being in an apartment. Um, and you know, the back and forth of that they do in Mexico. Um, whereas the majority of the time I'm not, I've, I've experienced being in a hospital inpatient for months and months and months of my life before. Um, so my choice is, is, is to not do that. And I, I appreciate that of Mexico, but it's, you know, we have very few choices. Um, so I don't feel like I'm making this choice solely because it's the only thing it kind of is, but it, it, they were able to, um, convince me that it is, it is very much a good option to choose. And so that, that's where I came to by this summer. And so it was truly by, gosh, the end of August when we had gone through all the things and I had uploaded all of my medical information and they had come back to us and said, you know, yes, we, we think you're a good candidate. We're ready to go forward. Here are the dates to choose from. And we were really blown away by the fact that literally, you know, it had we were ready to go. I could have been down there already. We could have started in September, and that was just a little too fast for a variety of reasons to make it happen. Um, like many other people, I am I am working on fundraising to try to help um, to, to offset not digging myself into you know a larger hole. Um, I have tremendous generosity and support that is that has come out from both friends and from family. I have you know my parents and uh, and one of my uncles who stepped up and and in a way that I was was very much not expecting um, and is being very very helpful. My whole family is, is incredible, and I'm very lucky that way. I know that. Um, so it just ended up that, that October looked to be the best choice for us, but that was the the long evolution of of how we came to make this choice and and this location in particular. And so I'm sure you asked the question about how many patients they've treated with CIDP in yes. the past. Yes. So the answer from Mexico at the time that I asked it, and this was August, so I don't know if this is, I believe that this answer is just people that they have um, gone and treated as well as who they have outcome measures. And I think they follow people for a year, if I'm not mistaken, um, as opposed to the, the five years that a uh, clinical trial in the United States typically follows. But what they told me is that they have 15. <laughs> One five is the number of um, individuals with CIDP who they have treated. So it's a small number, but I was tremendously encouraged by the fact that it's 1,000 people with MS, and it's, I think, on the order of 3,000 people total if you take together, you know, various other autoimmune um, and blood cancer diseases that they've treated over the course of like five to 10 years that they've been doing this. And since, in particular, the um, protocol that's used between MS and CIDP is not different, and that's true of the Northwestern Protocol as well, if I'm not mistaken, that, that solidified from a safety standpoint that sure. they knew what they were doing. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily tell you enough about efficacy, for sure, to say that, you know, 85% of 15 people you know, that, that percentage moves quickly if one person has a different outcome, of right? Course. So that, that's a malleable number, and I know, and I get that. Seeing Dr. Burt's phase two publication of 60 people and experiencing the same number provided a lot of um, support and confidence to that choice. And again, they, it was more about um, with them at that point, once I kind of drilled down into feeling like the protocols were similar enough to what's been published and shown to be, you know, as effective as, as we've been able to find that um, the safety numbers is really what I was then 
feeling confident about with the of fact course. that they have done this thousands of people, even if they'd all been tapped CIDB. Well, and the idea that HSCT ultimately is designed to, again, halt progression, right? Stop the disease where it is. And then you move forward with trying to heal all the damage that has been incurred up until that point. Yeah. But ultimately, we're always vulnerable to, to some infection or virus or bacteria that can change everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's, there's risk, you know, and that's, that was the scary part of, of moving forward and, and trying something like this entirely paying for it out of pocket and getting to the point of having to accept asking people for help and having to be like, it may not work. You know, (laughs) we don't know for sure, you know, and I was, it, it, it took me a while to realize that I was more worried about that than other people. Um, and I'm just worried about that in terms of like, I don't want people to feel like they're wasting their money. And everybody's like, just try, you know, knowing that the choice that we're always making, you know, even with that, that relatively small choice of, for me, okay, do we take my treatments down from four times a month to three times a month? There is a trade-off in your health happening there. When I feel system happening, that is nerve damage. You know, and so being aware of that, that as time goes on and as all of this is creating more damage, that the longer we wait, that something like this that could potentially stop additional damage from happening, you're you're putting yourself further in a hole from where you might be able to recover back from. You know, like I have intense neuropathy in my feet and I have lost the like small muscles in my feet and, and many of the muscles that, that help lift your toes. Just, I can't activate them anymore. I have axon damage. There was so much nerve damage that it went down and it actually damaged the nerve itself and not just the um, the coating on that nerve. I'm never getting that back. Like there's, there's pretty much the, that is gone to me. Um, that is most likely never going to be able to heal. Those types of things are just a function of how much damage has had the chance to happen before you're able to put a stop to it and allow natural recovery to happen because we don't have anything that we can take or give or, or inject right. that right. heals the nervous system faster. And, and I think that's important for anyone considering HSCT yes. to understand that, you know, and I, I see a lot of people being like, I did this and I'm not any better. And it's like, you have to be aware of what better is supposed to mean. And the right. first and foremost thing is, Better in this case means can you get off your meds? Can you get off? And not and not necessarily, like, I'm probably never going to be able to get off my gabapentin. My gabapentin treats the symptoms of my neuropathy. It makes it so that I can deal with the fact that my feet feel like they're being stabbed and burned all the time. That lessens that. That medication, I may not be able to come off of. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to say that defeatist. It's just being in a... In a place of, of understanding, yes. you know, realistic, I mean, expectation-wise. And so I want people to make sure that they are making the decision to do this from the right place of what, first and foremost, is is likely or hopefully to be the, 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 the place of benefit. The rest of it is you're hoping that it's able to heal on its own because it's not being attacked anymore. But it isn't a guarantee that you're going to get all those things back again. You know, that's a function of natural healing. And so it's just, yeah, it, it becomes 
the hard part of where we are um, in the United States with how this is, is that I know, so, you know, there's FDA approval rate for HSET, but it's only if you are um, non-responsive rate to other, to other treatments. So you come to the end of the road, right, in terms of what, what else you can do. And then you, and it, for many of us, it feels backwards, right? This is the type of thing that you want to do on the front end before there's damage. Yes, because before it, the damage you know, sets you know, in. Right. Right. Um, but the risk reward makes that a tough choice, right? Because it is um, some very harsh and intensive, you know, immunoblative chemotherapy. It's it's not it's not nothing, right? That we're that we're putting ourselves through. And so that's always a risk reward choice. And the best situation you can be in is to have good people around you that are willing to look at that and not reject it out of hand. And consider it in the in the long view of, of what you're dealing with with your disease. And I know that in many cases, for many people, they feel like that 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 that's they don't have you know a doctor that that's helpful with that. They don't have someone that is is being an advocate of that. They're told in many cases, you know, forget it, don't even think about it. And it's not that I didn't have that on the front end. I right. did, but right. I think I recognize why, and I appreciate that I have a doctor who has always been willing to. When she doesn't know something, she says she doesn't know it. You know, she doesn't try to fake her way through it. She doesn't try to, you know, tell me that things are, and she doesn't try to play God. And so she has evolved as well in um, her her willingness to stand behind this and be like, you know, I understand why you're making this choice, and so I'm I support you. And you know, she she talked to everyone that that I asked her to talk to when I was trying to to get. Um, HSPT in, in the United States, and this is just kind of where, where we have landed and what, what we think is the best thing for me. Um, but it's interesting in the sense of then, you know, knowing I'm coming back from having this done, and then I have a hematologist. You know, I have a lot of blood work that I get all the time because I'm putting my body through plasmapheresis and taking all these things out on a regular basis, and so there's a lot of things that we're already tracking. And I have talked to my regular doctor, I've talked to my hematologist, I've talked to my neurologist to make sure they all know that I'm doing this. And it is interesting that there's a little bit of pushback, not in don't do this, but everyone, and I think it may be just a little bit of natural caution, but also a little bit of cover your ass, a little bit of CYA, of being like, you know, oh, well, you need to talk to the doctors that, you know, this is, this is not, I'm not, I don't do this. You know, the doctors that, that do the treatment in Mexico are who you need to talk to about, you know, the follow-up blood work and everything else. And I had to be like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not flying back to Mexico every two to four weeks to get blood work done. You know, we're going to do that here. I need you to be ordering those things and on top of those things. And just like you were talking about, you know, what might happen after, are things like infections. Those infections, if, if, you know, Dr. Burt wouldn't have been the person to treat that infection, right. and the, the doctors in, in Mexico wouldn't be the ones to treat that infection. You would go to a doctor that treats infections, and, you know, I would go to my PCP, I would go to my hematologist, I would go to an infectious disease person if something like that develops, because it's happening because my immune system is compromised, not because I have some very specific thing that has happened that is because, you know, that is specific to the transplant. So getting everybody right. on board with being that they are still members of my healthcare team and things that might develop, even though I've had this other thing done that they are not responsible for and, you know, whatever, the conversations on this front end, 
it's not that anyone said no I won't it's just that they put a lot of like oh I don't know you know I don't, yeah. I don't know exactly what it's just going to take a lot of they're just protecting themselves I think and wanting to make sure they're like I'm not an expert in this and it's like right. okay I know that um, I'm going to give you you know the list of things that they're t- saying that we should test for and you know I'm lucky enough to be like we also have we know what Dr. Bird's protocol is right here at Northwestern so let's look at that too is there anything in addition that we should be looking at that they do that we think is appropriate but it's like trying to get everybody on that team even though they did not you know prescribe or are responsible for the, the chemo and the HSBT that's happening um, I'm seeing how that's a little bit challenging um, and we'll we'll see how it goes when I get back. I am I am confident that this team will continue to be the the excellent medical providers that they have been. I have been super super lucky in in the, in the people that I have I have landed on. And I will just say this: I didn't I didn't look for it and I didn't pick it this way. But my entire medical team, um, for my regular stuff, they're all women. My hematologist is a woman. My neurologist is a woman. My PCP is a woman. And they have been the best to work with and have been least likely to kind of put the I know what's best and, you know, blocks up in the way. And I don't know if that's always the case, but at least with my back and forth and I've dealt with a lot of doctors, um, I'm very glad to have this female team. And I would recommend it to anyone. And it's just something to consider if you're a woman going through this as well, um, that you might find something in, in, in female doctors that, that may work better for you and how maybe you work through things and want to talk through things um, than you make on It's been, yeah, it's been great. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Definitely comes with it. Um, question marks. And, you know, we'll, we'll see how everybody comes together, but it's going to be another, and I know that it's, you know, it started this way of needing to be an advocate for myself for it. And I know I'm going to have to continue to do that. Um, on the flip side, to make sure Absolutely. that we're monitoring everything that we need to monitor and that, you know, and nobody puts in the way of, well, I'm not responsible for this if, if something starts to go wrong because tough. <laughs> I don't care. The infection doesn't care. The infection doesn't care. Right, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Exactly. Well, and you've, you've yeah. gained a lot of experience with it. It's almost like you've been training for this. Right, right. It feels that way. It for feels that time. way. There yeah. is definitely you know, anybody that is going through any kind of chronic anything. Um, and even if it's not chronic, I don't want to take out people that have gone through Guillain-Barre when you're, you're spending sure. months, if not years, to recover in symptoms and everything else. That's a chronic experience in its own right. Um, you are forced to become expert at something you never thought you were going to be expert in. And that's just how it works. You know, it's just something that we all need to accept. And it's frustrating, but the, in order to get the best care for ourselves, it's, it's something that's absolutely necessary is to learn as much as we can about it and ask as many questions as we can about it um, and to be as informed as we can. It's the best thing we can do for ourselves. So true. So I'm so grateful that, that you, you, you guys exist because, you know, through you, I, I listened to, all, you know, so many of your podcasts to hear personal experiences, to understand, you know, what was, what was coming up and have linked together with people that have, you know, gone through it and are, have gone through it at Monterey and that you have, you know, that one set of your page where you've got all the articles that have been published and the information that's all together. It's tremendously helpful. And it's been, it's been helpful to be able to point people to an individual location to, to get information. And, you know, my family has been, all of us have been part of the limiter 
birth that you've given. And oh, um, I've been listening to so yep. So my parents, my sister, and I from, you know, all of our different locations um, have been um, listening in and, and part of those conversations. And it's been really, really helpful oh, um, so to give everyone confidence and information. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. So, um, yeah, it's, it's part of the process. And um, to have these resources is, 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 is fantastic. Well, and that's the whole point, right? Is like, I, exactly. kept, I kept seeing snippets of information or people would ask questions in Facebook groups and you get a few responses yeah. from various different people, but never really mm-hmm. like a full picture. And, and when Absolutely. I was in Chicago going through everything, I thought, well, what if I were to just interview people about their experiences and then we could hear more mm-hmm. of the story? And thankfully, out of a few conversations, we, you know, decided to start the nonprofit. And I'm just so glad it's been a resource for you and and your family. That's great to hear. It's been wonderful. Yeah, it's been wonderful. And, you know, and I'm, as you know, like, as you you guys can hear, like, I'm someone that, you know, it's not that I I don't have access or haven't had access to the different articles. And it doesn't matter how connected you are. It's still useful to have everything in one place. Yes, yes. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's been great. So I'm, I'm very hopeful, you know, I'm, I'm at this point, gosh, what day is it? Is it October 8th or something like that? Um, and I leave on the 25th. So we're down to, you know, two and a half weeks here at this point. And, uh, now I'm just, now I'm ready to go. Wow, I bet you feel ready. <laughs> Let's get it started. Let's do this. So, would you say that you've gained a superpower from your experience preparing for HSCT? You've talked a lot about becoming a strong self-advocate, right? And doing the research. And is yeah. that your superpower or do you think you've gained another? I think more than anything for me has been maybe the wide, wide lens that I've gained from this experience in terms of you know, I had, I was so grateful for the fact that I was a very active person coming into being sick. And I was very quickly able to take what I knew as an athlete and apply that to rehab and recovery to, okay, we start from where we are, we build up, we do repetitions, we keep working at it. Like all of those things were things that I was familiar with. Um, as an endurance athlete, I was very familiar with working through, like, pain. And so knowing the difference between good pain and bad pain, right? Like, that pain that's an injury versus this is really hard right now. Um, that has been really helpful. But what I've learned in my superpower, I think, is recognizing that it's a full circle, that I have been able to take what I have learned from dealing with this constant neuropathy and pain in my feet there have been, you know, if I can get through that, I can get through this one. I can get through this thing. I can, I can do or, or, or keep at something that the experiences of being sick can help me in my life and my regular life and my athletic life can help me get through things when I'm sick. I think recognizing and seeing how important it is not to tie my identity to any particular thing. Like, my identity doesn't have to be linked to, and my self-worth doesn't have to be linked to being a active research scientist and faculty member. I am still a smart, productive person 
even without my job right now, because it's been affected by sickness. That doesn't change who I am. You know, not being able to run a Boston qualifying marathon time doesn't change my identity as someone who can run. I can run even if what I'm running is a 13 minute mile right now, because I don't have, you know, the act- the activation to my muscles that right, I can of do. Course. That get myself and having to force myself to say, you know, um, I can dwell on this and be sad about what I feel like I've lost or recognize that I, oh, actually still there. It's just, we may do something different with those talents, with those things. Our version of what a good run or a successful this, that, or the next thing, it just needs to evolve with where we are at that particular point in time. And I think that has become my superpower, that recognition of what is still there and vital regardless of whether I'm in a wheelchair, I'm using my um, forearm crutches to walk, or I'm able to get out and do, you know, 100-mile bike ride with my friends. None of those things change who I am. That's beautiful. And such an important reminder for so many people. It's hard. It's hard. You know, we when our first things in, in any conversation, right, is we're asked and we kind of, like, introduce ourselves and decide, what do you do? What do you do outside? What are your hobbies? Like, we have these things that, that, that define us, that we use to define ourselves. But how we tie to them and what we need of them may change, may be different. And at the end of it, what it really should be is, you know, are we trying, are we putting our best effort forward from wherever we are right now? If it's our best effort, then that's all that matters. Right. That's all that matters. That's all, all we can just, ever do. Yeah, we're just humans trying to figure out this experience. And all of those things happening, that's just the story, right? And so. Yeah, exactly. Which I think, which I think, you know, I really felt that any of us that are dealing with these things health-wise are so well poised to have gotten through this year because we are so used to having to get the best out of bad situations, having to alter and having a good day within an entirely different scenario, Right. Any of us that have spent time in the hospital, like if you spent days or weeks or months in a hospital, like the idea of not being able to leave your house for a few days, not that big deal, you know, like it's just, it gives perspective in a very different way. And so I feel like all of us have, have, have a superpower that we've been able to use to get through this, that, that, that others may not have realized up to this point. Absolutely. Yeah. I've been so grateful and it, it will be different in Mexico. For me, just because um, the option of going for a run or going for a bike ride is not there. Like that's been, you know, to do that solo through all of this um, has been, you know, that's a low risk activity. Just getting outside by myself. I wear my mask and I run, you know, as I'm running through anywhere that there is people. And as we've come to know more about what's going on with coronavirus, we know that, you know, being outdoors is the very best thing you can do. Um, So getting outside and getting exercise has kind of been as much um, mental as physical um, for me. And then this month in Mexico, and granted, as I'm going through it, um, I don't expect to be feeling like I'm ready to go sprinting anywhere. But those first couple weeks on the front side are going to be interesting because, you know, I know that I need to stay quarantined and locked down in a very different way, um, just in terms of, of not being able to be active in the same way. But, you know, that's why there are virtual yoga classes and yes, things yes. that I need to do. You know, there's, there's always something different. You know, I've, we have, uh, I'm on a triathlon team that, that this month 
is doing a, a daily challenge of uh, core workouts. And so there's been every day there's a different, um, you know, workout for obviously the stomach and the chest and the arms and things like that that they've been posting. And so I just saved that. And so that for me is going to start when I get, you know, down there in Mexico. And so I have something each day that I can tune into that I can do in my little apartment that whatever, and it will be, I'll modify it as I'm able, you know, as I'm, as I'm feeling weaker or sicker or whatever, then you just, you know, taking a walk around my apartment or doing something small, but you can always modify and find a way to, to be active, to move, to use your body in some way. You can always do it. Um, and so I feel like I'm very well poised to, to be ready to do that even you know, with my usual option of, of go out the front door with my mask on and, and go for a run. If that's sure. not available, okay, sure, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll do something else for a little while. HSCT certainly helps us learn adaptability. Sure, absolutely, absolutely, yep, yep, that's the key to getting through so many things, whether it's whether it's illness or injury, is recognizing adaptability and recognizing um, modifications that are available to anything. So important. So what are you grateful for about your experience so far with um, pursuing so, HSCT? Yeah, I mean, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for the fact that, you know, I have people in my life that were, were looking for answers and, and looking for next things, um, even before I was able to do so. Um, Tony, my partner, gets huge credit for that. He, he heard about HSCT even before I came across it. Um, and he's always been an advocate for considering, um, anything that, that might be helpful in my work. And so his willingness to stay on me, to keep it in my mind as a possibility is, is huge. Um, I'm grateful, hugely grateful. I've been in one of those people that, you know, I am surrounded by great people and through all of this, you know, you hear so many times that you, you find out, um, you find out who your friends are or who your true friends are, right. When you go through something that's awful. And, um, what I have found out is that all of my friends are true friends. I am, I'm, I guess that I am very lucky in that I have a family that, you know, my memory of being in the hospital is more memories of us laughing of us just, you know, them being there, people being with me and us talking and laughing um, and just finding a way to, to get through it and being there. And then all the friends who have continued to not just be there for me, but, you know, a lot of what my friendships have been have been tied to, you know, we, we know each other through running or we know each other through biking or we know each other through, through science. And as my ability to be involved in any of those things has changed, um, people have been willing to slow down their pace, slow down their bicycles, talk to me about science and meet up and do things outside, even if we're not at work. Like I, I am, I am so incredibly grateful for the people that are in my life. Um, that has been my, my massive learning of, you know, I already knew that I knew great people, but, but now it's just like, it's no contest. Um, and so, yeah. And so the people that have been willing as well to help me modify, to help me, I know I keep coming back to that, but whether it's been the coaches I work with or anything else, help people willing to help me find, even when I was in a wheelchair, you know, ways to figure out how to work my body and get back to doing CrossFit workouts when I could barely stand up. But being part of that community was huge to healing mentally 
and being that connected when I was finally out of the hospital again um, was enormous. And so anyone that has been involved in that um, has been a huge part of, of keeping me feeling like myself as well as, you know, the actual physical building of my body again, which has been, which has been huge. So gratitude for all of the positive forces and that then allows me, it makes it easier to have a positive attitude. And it sounds cheesy, but looking at things from the perspective of, I think it's going to get better. I'm choose to believe, I chose to believe that I was going to recover when I was paralyzed because I was told that many people do. And I get that that's not a guarantee. Again, I, I do not want to take away from anyone who did not, has not had the same um, experience, who has cried their hardest and worked their hardest and not been able to make it back. Um, but I knew that I wasn't going to get there if I chose to believe it wasn't going to happen. There was no way it was going to get better if I wasn't at least willing to believe and then behave as if putting in the hard work was going to pay off. And having that people around me to support that has made it possible to, to continue and to keep that attitude that I think is really helpful to be able to get to whatever best we each are able to get to given our own circumstances. That is powerful and something that will carry you through HSCT, right? Every day as you reflect on all of that gratitude right. and all of that experience and that mental positivity and the mindset of determination and knowing that it is possible. It is possible. And until like there's no benefit in believing it won't happen or there's no benefit in focusing on, oh my God, what if this doesn't work? And I know I've said that it's not that I don't have those thoughts of it might not. I think being realistic is different, but it's not going to, you're never going to get there. You're not going to get to it if you put in your head, I don't think it's going to happen. So why not just believe? Why not just believe it will and work toward it happening and then you deal with whatever you get. But at least you know you put in your very best and that includes your perspective and your, and your attitude, you know, the only thing, the only thing we get to choose in this life is our, our attitude and things, our perspective and our effort. That's it. You know, everything else lands on us, but how we, how we respond to things, how we react to things is our choice and how much effort we put into them. When you, when you've gone through this, as all of us have, when we have these things that happen to us, we feel very out of control, right? Like we have no control over getting on that. We have no control over getting CIDP, but I can control my effort and I can control my attitude. So at least I have that. It's true. So true. Thank you for sharing all of these valuable lessons and inspirations. Yep. Before you know yep. it, you'll be back connected with others. Absolutely. In person. Yeah. I mean, after, after all of this, a month just doesn't seem like that long. <laughs> no, it really truly flies by. And all of a sudden, you'll be a year post transplant and you're like, crazy. Really? Crazy. Really? Yeah. Yeah, take it a bit at a time, but yeah. Exactly. And so, yeah, just take good care of yourself for the next couple of weeks as you prepare to go. It sounds okay. like you're in a yep. really good mental place, and that's so yep. important. Yeah, we're trying to be, you know, just extra careful, particularly as we go in these next two weeks. So knowing that, you know, one of the, the very first things, the very first thing when we arrive is that we'll be tested for, for SARS-CoV-2. And if either, if either one of us um, are positive, then we can't, 
you know, go in. We can't start treatment. So that's hugely important to us um, is to, you know, even more so than before. Like, I, you know, I've been being very careful. We've been being very careful because I'm already immunosuppressed. But this is about, you know, even if it's an asymptomatic positive, it's, it's, it's a no-go. So um, being as careful as we can, we'll both be tested before we leave. So that hopefully we'll, we'll know before we get there if that nice. unfortunate consequence sure. were to happen and then we can just adjust. Um, well, from what we understand, you know, they've been very flexible with people. There's only been a couple, but you, you just reschedule for a different time and, and we'll figure it out. But yeah, we're trying to be keeping things as, as healthy as we can for all of the reasons. Um, not just coronavirus, but just anything in general to be as, as healthy and as safe as possible. But in the world we are now, that's certainly a major factor. Indeed. Well, all of us will be cheering you on. And I do hope that we'll connect when you return so that we can hear I would love how to. everything goes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd be, I'm, I'm excited to be on the other side so that I'll, I'll know how it went, right? <laughs> Indeed. And I'm sure it'll all go so well for you. That's, that's what I'm going to be choosing to believe, you yeah, know, as we exactly. go into it, as we go through it, that there's no reason to think otherwise. And then anything that comes up, we'll deal with it as it goes. You couldn't choose better words or a better mindset. Thank you. Well, that's good to hear from, from someone who's been through it. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.com where you can find notes from today's episode Submit ideas or feedback and connect with resources of the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Allen Salzer for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. It's been so great to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind. Be well. John Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained in the podcast. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician. 